Today I'm going to be reading from Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The word of God for the people of God. That's fine. Thanks, Emily. Well, welcome again. My name is Matt. I serve as the pastor here, if I have not met you before. It's nice to see some new faces in here. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that um, you might give us ears to hear this morning. That above all, we'd hear your voice, your word, and that we'd be able to discern what is ours, not only to hear, but to let sink deep into our lives and to apply. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think that Israel was depressed. I think Israel was depressed. Not necessarily clinically depressed. I mean, there wouldn't have been any psychiatrists to diagnose them 2,000 years ago anyway. But I certainly think they were unhappy. They probably had a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. I bet many of them felt like they had lost their purpose. And it's understandable. By the time Jesus comes on the scene... It had been hundreds of years since any prophet definitively spoke the word of God to them. And their country was under Roman occupation, pretty much restricting any hope of true religious or economic flourishing. It's hard to maintain purpose with a seemingly silent God. And it's even harder to be happy without any purpose in life. Uh, In late 2019, my wife and I moved to the L.A. area from Brooklyn, where we were living at the time. In Brooklyn, we both had pretty good jobs. And we were a part of a beautiful church community in an amazing neighborhood. And somehow, even in Brooklyn, we had a pretty great apartment. But we discerned God inviting us to something new. And so over the time period of basically a year, we prayed and talked with wise friends and mentors and decided that we should leave, that we should leave our church community, our neighborhood, our apartment. We discerned God inviting us into something new. So we left it all 
and we landed in the suburbs of L.A. with a four-month-old baby and no jobs. And those first three months being in L.A. were, up to that point in our marriage, for sure the hardest months. Because before we moved, we sensed God, right? We had discerned together, yes, God is calling us into something new. Let's sacrifice it all and go to this thing. But then when we got there, he seemed silent. And so there were, without a doubt, moments of purposelessness, moments of depression in that season, feeling like we... We risked it all. And now what? Why did we move here just to blow our savings and spend half our day sitting in traffic? What, what's the point? Israel, though, had gone through so much as a nation. Right? Slavery and then freedom, only to wander in the wilderness for decades asking similar questions, what's the point? And then they gain land and they develop a sort of government and they become this people with all these resources only to be occupied and sent into exile. Then they come back years later to rebuild only to be occupied again. What's the point of even trying to please God when he seems silent and the obstacles just keep coming one after another after another. I imagine that's how the people of Israel felt. I've felt that way at different times. I wonder, can you relate? Do any of you find yourselves now in a season of purposelessness? Has God seemingly gone mute? Not all of Israel was purposeless, though. Many had what I'd consider a misplaced or a sort of truncated purpose. They were settling for the lesser thing. Some made their purpose political freedom from the Roman oppression. They would fight the man. They would bring freedom to their people through violent resistance. They were not going to take this anymore. They would make Israel free again. And others made their purpose religious perfectionism. If God wasn't speaking, it must be because we've done something wrong. It must be because there's some sort of sin we're unaware of. So let's sort of refine our religion, creating more and more guidelines so we can attain holiness. Instead of just keeping a Sabbath, we'll create hundreds of rules around the Sabbath, putting an extra fence up so we don't accidentally sin and make God more angry than he already is. And both of these less-than purposes, they'd work for a little while. They give you something to fight for for a little while. But eventually, a truncated purpose... A short-sighted purpose basically leads to the same place of being purposeless anyways. And I wonder if any of you find yourselves here. 
Have you given yourself to something that's not actually worth it? Something that's not truly producing deep joy within you? Is your job eating up more and more of your time? And you're not even sure why you took it in the first place. Have you seen every Oscar nominee and every new Netflix series and now you're just endlessly scrolling through it? Well, I guess we could just watch this one tonight. It's into this moment of malaise, both Israel's and ours, that Jesus speaks these words. We're in a sermon series on Jesus' most famous teachings found in Matthew 5-7, through what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And our text for today finds itself directly after the Beatitudes, which we talked about last week. You've probably heard them before, even if you weren't here last week. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, etc., Well, because these verses are, are, again, so familiar to us, I want to read them once more. This is in the Common English Bible translation. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountain. He sat down and his disciples came to him. He taught them, saying, Happy are people who are hopeless, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are people who grieve, because they will be made glad. Happy are people who are humble, because they will inherit the earth. Happy are people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, because they will be fed until they are full. Happy are people who show mercy, because they will receive mercy. Happy are people who have pure hearts, because they will see God. Happy are people who make peace, because they will be called God's children. Happy are people whose lives are harassed because they are righteous, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are you when people insult you and harass you and speak all kinds of bad and false things about you, all because of me. Be full of joy and be glad, because you have a great reward in heaven. In the same way, people harassed the prophets who came before you. To a depressed people, Jesus gives words of happiness, words of blessedness. It's the translation most of us know, blessed. Israel had lost or misplaced her purpose, and Jesus is speaking to those who were longing to be reminded of it. He wasn't speaking to all of Israel, remember, but to those who were desperate for good news and purpose. Those who left everything to become his disciples, his followers. Note in that first verse of chapter 5, when Jesus sees the crowds, he goes up a mountain. It says his disciples followed him. Only the desperate climb a mountain to listen to a homeless rabbi from Nazareth. The way Jesus gives these words of happiness and the blessing and calling of our text today highlights many of Israel's original words of purpose. 
Think back to Israel's early days after being freed from Egypt. I mentioned some of this last week. Moses, he comes out of the desert, goes up on a mountain, and gives ten commandments over twelve tribes. Jesus comes out of the desert, goes up on a mountain, and gives blessings in the Beatitudes over his new disciples. Jesus is reframing a story that already exists in the minds of their hearing, of the hearers. This story of what it means to follow God, what it means to be blessed. But then, what's interesting is it goes even further back than Moses. Uh, when Jesus stands on the side of a hill and says, Blessed, Jesus is speaking into a history that long existed. It begins with the calling of one man, the call of Abram, who later becomes named Abraham, in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. I believe this is on the screen here. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. They will be blessed and the blessing extends to all. The point of Israel was never Israel. She is a means to an end. The blessing of the whole world. All these clues show us that the blessings given in the Beatitudes are generative blessings. Blessings that are given away to bless others. They don't end here. And so Israel, by Jesus, is called out of her depression and reminded of her purposes in God's plan. She is salt and light. You, me, we are salt and light. Let's talk about what Jesus says after the Beatitudes, what Emily read for us this morning. That you are the salt of the earth. That you are the light of the world. It's important that we hear these words as good news. They're good news. There's always that insidious temptation to misread this as something we need to do. A duty, an obligation, another burden placed on our already heavy laden shoulders. But rather than requirement, it is blessing. Rather than commandment, it is commissioning. Jesus doesn't say, if you want to become salt and light, do this. Or, before I'll call you salt and light, I'll need to see this from you. Rather, he says both simply and directly, you are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. They're words that give us identity and mission as a people. And the genius of these metaphors is that they appeal to our senses. And they're very familiar as well. 
I could talk for days about interesting facts about salt and light. But the power of a metaphor isn't in the theoretical idea of salt and light, but in your sensory experiences of them. Taste and sight. Taste and see. Jesus, the scriptures say stuff about that. But anyways, we all know the difference that salt and light make. We know this kind of stuff. Think of a slice of prosciutto or a salted caramel melting on your tongue. Or think of that time you ate the overcooked green beans with no salt at all. Think of the sunrise. Think of lighting a candle when your whole apartment is dark. Think of a flashlight when you're out camping and it's pitch dark. Jesus didn't expound on these metaphors. He just said, you are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. He doesn't give a whole bunch of stuff about why that's important. He just says it. He didn't have to fill in the gaps. He lets our experiences of salt and light fill in the gaps. And this is especially true, of course, for the original hearers because they would have understood salt and light a little bit different from us. We might miss a few of the extra layers of meaning. So I do want to talk a little bit about the ancient context. Go a little bit deeper. Salt. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Salt was extremely valuable in the first century. Roman soldiers were sometimes paid their wages in salt, which is where we get the word salary from. And... I'm not making it up. I mean, it's not just a clever thing like the first three letters of salary are the same as the first three letters of salt. It's, it's where we get it from. A soldier's salary was cut if he, quote, was not worth his salt, which is a phrase that came into being actually because the Greeks and Romans often bought slaves with salt. So if you buy someone with salt and they're not performing as they ought to, they're not even worth their salt. They're not worth what I had to pay to get this person. Humankind cannot exist without salt. It's the only taste, I love this, it's the only taste that is also necessary to our bodies to function. You know the five tastes? I think there's five, six. Uh, but, but, but isn't that wild? You know, we can live without sweetness. If you never taste sweetness again, you'll survive. You can live without bitter. You can live without sour. You can even live without Umami. But if you're deprived from sodium for long enough, your heart will stop beating. So, as long as you don't have extremely high blood pressure, if you got a craving for something salty, eat it. It's probably your body saying, I need some salt. We were at the Limbs for dinner last night, and let me tell you, now that is a family who knows how to salt their food, okay? (laughs) The two most uh, apparent uses of salt in the ancient Near East were preserving and flavoring. There were other uses as well, but these are the, the two primary ones, preserving and flavoring. Preserving, salt works as a preservative, right? Imagine living before refrigeration. 
If you want anything to last, it's going to need to be preserved. Salt, the way it does this, it draws out the water, which ends up killing the bacteria. Civilizations that had salt flourished. Those communities that could not get salt did not because their food would spoil sooner. So they would have to do twice as much energy hunting and gathering. Salt preserves. It also flavors. By drawing, same way, by drawing out the water, salt highlights the flavor that's already latent within that piece of food. Any chef or home cook knows the importance of properly seasoning with salt. Seasons of Master Chef and Top Chef, James Beard Awards, Michelin Stars have all been won by less than an eighth of a teaspoon of salt. We know this. Food is pretty dull without salt. Your main takeaway if you invite me over for dinner, don't undersalt the food. Just kidding. Um, but Jesus is saying to the Israelites, This is why you are here. This is your purpose. It's your blessing and your sending. You preserve and bring out the God flavors of the earth. That's how Eugene Peterson says it. You preserve and bring out the God flavors of the earth. And then we move on to light. Jesus says in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. No, Jesus, they don't. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Salt uh, preserves and flavors. Light compels and colors. Light compels and colors. It compels. Look at the imagery Jesus uses when he talks about light. He talks about a city on top of a hill. Now, Chicago is not on a hill, but still, you can imagine that you're out on Lake Michigan, and it's dark at night. You're on a boat, but you're not a sailor. You don't know where you are. You just know you're on a lake. (laughs) And you don't know where to go. And then, all of a sudden, rising on the horizon are these lights. Well, now you have some direction and purpose. You're compelled to safety by the light. Or for Jesus' hearers, imagine that you're out in the middle of the desert in the first century. Now, that would be dark. I mean, we're talking pitch dark. You're aimlessly wandering, and then off in the distance, you see a glow. And you know that the glow is a city, Not with one light, because you wouldn't see it, or ten lights, but thousands of lights. I read somewhere that it's thought that you could see the light from a city in the first century from nearly a hundred miles out into the desert. The light guides you. It compels you in. It draws you in. (coughs) Excuse me. Light compels. It also brings color. I tend to think of objects as sort of having a fixed color. An orange, for example, is orange. That's just obvious, the color that it is. But in reality, 
an object's appearance results from the way it reflects a particular light that is falling on it. Under white light, an orange appears orange because it tends to reflect light in the orange portion of the spectrum and it absorbs light of other wavelengths. However, if a filter is used to remove orange from the light source, the orange will reflect very little light and it will appear black. So light is what, you know, actually gives us... Excuse me. (coughs) Losing my voice here. Well, just like food is bland without salt, the world is much less interesting to look at without color. And so to the Israelites who lost their purpose, Jesus says, you are light. Your lives compel others towards me and bring out the color in the world. And he says this to us as well. And so with these metaphors of salt and light, Jesus is saying that as his Followers, we highlight the beauty and goodness inherent in God's good world. You are a blessing to others by your very existence as a Christian. You show people an alternative to the dullness that is life without God. Can you hear that and receive that, not from me, but from Jesus this morning. You show people an alternative to the dullness that is life without God. But then we have to get to how. How? Because this sounds great, right? Who doesn't want to be told, hey, you, you are the antidote to dullness. But how does this become the reality that Jesus speaks over us? There are two ways that we do this. The first and most important is the shape of our life. Simply the shape of our life. Because remember the context of these verses. Right after the Beatitudes. Where Jesus gives a very peculiar portrayal of what the good life looks like. And if we truly believe that to be blessed, to be happy, to have the good life, is to live like Jesus says, then we can't help but add flavor and color to our relationships and workplaces. We can't help but draw out and preserve that which is good simply by the shape of our lives the way we live in the world. (coughs) Perhaps for you, the best and most practical takeaway from this sermon will be to spend more time with the Beatitudes. Meditate on them. Memorize them. Let God search your heart through them. Look for the ways your life lines up or grinds against them. Here's a quick caveat. A little, little diatribe i got to go on. Some of us at the beginning of the year, we get really excited about a Bible reading plan. And we say, this year, I'm reading through the whole thing. Watch me. And then maybe we do, and that's fantastic. 
or maybe we get, feel really bad about ourselves by now, a month in, or a couple months in. But, uh, you know, that's certainly not a bad goal. There's nothing wrong with reading lots of Scripture. But the reality is, for most of us, we need to slow down and read less. I'm not saying read less often or commit less time to reading the Bible. But I am saying many of us need to learn to slow down and savor what's right in front of us. My son Shepard, like me, loves donuts. And if we put the whole donut on his plate, he'll chomp through all the frosting, you know, the top half of the donut, and leave the rest there and say, okay, I'm done. What's next? You say, no, you know, you didn't eat, you didn't eat your donut. Uh, now, there's probably not much healthy in a donut, but if there is anything healthy, it'd be in that bottom half, you know, maybe some <laughs> carbohydrates or something. So we have to give him just half a donut at a time and say, savor, eat, and digest this half before you get the next half. And I think, you know, that's true for a lot of us with Scripture. We just skim the sugary bits off the top and move on. So as your pastor, I'm telling you to slow down. Uh, I will not be impressed by how much of your Bible you read this next year. I'll be impressed by how little you read. Don't move on until you've savored and digested what's right in front of you. In fact, I would even encourage you to go ahead and give up your 2023 reading plans, and for the next three months, just sit in the Sermon on the Mount with us. There's plenty in there. And if you can tell me, Pastor Matt, I've graduated from that. Uh, I'm doing all of those things wonderfully every day. (laughs) Then I will say, take my job, and you do this. Tell me how you did that. Um, All right, caveat done. I'm I'm off that. Remember, the point was that the first way we live into the reality of being salt and light is by the sort of beatitudinal shape of our life. I don't think that's a word, but that the beatitudinal shape of our lives, we'll say. The second way that we can live into the reality that we are salt and light is to practice cultivating and creating culture. Some of us, as Christians, we've been told that Culture is suspect or even evil and something to be avoided. There's us, good Christians, and then out there, there's culture. Uh, Andy Crouch is a thinker who I really appreciate. and He wrote a book, it's over 10 years old now, called Culture Making. And it was a game changer for me. I I highly recommend it. Um, But he defines culture simply as what we make of the world. Culture is what we make of the world. So there's never just the culture. There's all sorts of cultures and culture. And he says that the two primary postures we should have towards culture culture is to cultivate and create it. Cultivate. So let's talk about what does it mean to cultivate culture. Well, that means... Cultivate in general is when you nurture something and you help it grow. You can think of a garden, um, cultivating. And part of our role as salt is to preserve, 
to preserve that which is good. And in the same way, as light, we can reveal the goodness that already exists in the world. We can cultivate that which is good, honor it, keep hold of it, show it to others, be excited about it. Yeah. What if Christians were known as people who tend and nourish what is best in human culture? Who do the hard and painstaking work to preserve the best of what people before us have done? You can cultivate culture. But then you can also create. Salt and light add flavor and color to our world. And in doing so, they add new dimensions to what already exists. The calling God invites us into is one of creativity. And this isn't just for cooks and painters, but for us as Christians to let the Spirit of God baptize our imaginations to see a world that isn't here yet. That's true Christian creativity. You can actually imagine the world that is to come, heaven on earth, all things made right. You can picture it, you can see it, and then you work towards it. That requires creativity because it's not here yet. What if we were known as people who dare to think and do something that has never been thought or done before? Something that makes the world more welcoming, more just, more thrilling, more beautiful, more like the kingdom of heaven. Natalia's going to do it. I don't know about anyone else. I want to know, can you imagine, can you just even imagine living in such a way that people would say, if we all left, if we all left, if this church just, boop, gone, or all Christians, boom, gone. If people would say, Andersonville is so bland since the Christians left. <laughs> Chicago is so dull. And, and I wonder, because I believe in the Holy Spirit who is active and present in this room right now, I wonder if God is stirring up something in you in this moment right now. I wonder if any of you are beginning to imagine something that God is inviting you to cultivate or to create. If there's something on your mind, even the slightest bit, take note of it. Write it down. And before the day is over, share it with somebody. The best way for a good thing to die is for it to remain unspoken. Don't let that happen. If you have something in mind, tell someone. You can grab me after the service, anything. And press into it, press into it. Salt and light are a lot like beauty. Beauty. They bring out flavor and color. They make the world beautiful. Beauty, you know, is different than glamour. I'm not talking about the beauty industry. I'm not talking about a shade of lipstick. I'm talking about beauty as that aspect of life 
that we apprehend by our senses, that we can hear, taste, see, touch, smell. Beauty is powerful because what it addresses is our deep level desires, things that we really want. Beauty addresses and then it pulls us towards it. Like salt, which brings up our desire for thirst, usually, if something's too salty, or light, it brings to our attention our desires. Beauty brings to our attention our desires. And at its most powerful, beauty compels us towards the good and the true. N.T. Wright, a theologian and New Testament scholar, he writes this about beauty. All the beauty of the world, the beauty that calls our admiration, our gratitude, our worship at the earthly level, is meant as a set of hints, of conspiratorial whispers, of clues and suggestions and flickers of light, all nudging us into believing that behind the beautiful world is not random chance, but the loving God. Beauty always points beyond itself. The final verse from our scripture today says, so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. So they can see the good things and praise your Father. Be moved beyond the good thing. When used properly, salt and light both do this. They point beyond themselves. Staring directly into the, into the light is a good way to go blind. But staring at what the light shows is beautiful. Eating handfuls of salt <laughs> is going to destroy your palate and maybe kill you. But salt and light, like beauty, are meant to point beyond themselves. And so as our lives embody Jesus, as we seek to become more like Jesus, we'll naturally point beyond ourselves. We'll invite others to experience him by our very lives. The truth, goodness, and beauty of our lives and of the culture that we cultivate and create will point to the truth, goodness, and beauty of our God. We become an alternative to the dullness of life without God. This is why the psalmist can sing good news to us and our neighbors when they say, taste and see how good the Lord is. The one who takes refuge in him is truly happy, blessed. Would you pray with me? All-beautiful God, would you remind us even now of who we are in you, what's already ours, who you've already made us to be. God, graciously allow our lives to season and color our relationships, our work, our city, our world. Fill us with creativity and with your spirit that we may cultivate and create for the good of the world. Let us always point beyond ourselves to the glory of the one who made it all. 
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.